So let's read together from God's Word from Exodus chapter 34. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Yahweh said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, and he uses a different word here, Adonai, the generic word for Lord. O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he, that is Yahweh, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you will go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would take your word now, which is given for our encouragement and for our endurance in the faith. And you would give us sober thoughts, especially as we think about the condition of this world, which is not just the world we live in, but it's the world you made, the world you love, the world you are redeeming. And I pray that today we can have serious and God-honoring thoughts about even things like the presidential election, even things like the failures of our own hearts, families and churches and the systems of our society, and that you would redeem us, God, and give us hope once again to endure and to believe that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the only God of gods. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and the Son of God. Amen. You may be seated. 
today we're looking at this passage, which I've called Rewriting the Ten Commandments. And before you start casting stones at me for saying that, of course, hopefully you'll catch the, the joke that Moses here, after receiving the first copy of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, which the people broke the Ten Commandments by making a golden calf, worshiping and dancing around it and saying, thank you, calf, you are our God, which saved us from slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And then Moses literally threw the stone tablets down the mountain and they shattered. And now God is saying, rewrite that law, the Ten Commandments, on these tablets yet again, because you broke them. And what does Exodus 34 have to do with the presidential election, you might be wondering? What is 2016, November, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and all the others who won't become president, what does this have to do with Exodus 34? Well, besides the fact that Exodus 34, God placed Moses in the cleft of the rock, as we read about in chapter 33 and 34, and said, wait for my glory to come, and I will proclaim my name to you, Yahweh. I will show you all my goodness. And I think, maybe it's just me, but does anybody else want to hide under a rock here and just wait it out and wait for God's glory to finally come one day and make everything right? But the church is called to enter the land, to engage with the culture, to proclaim the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and live faithfully for His glory. Amen? Amen. Exodus 34 compels us to enter this story of God's covenant with God's people who were sinful and broke the covenant, now he's renewing the covenant. He says, I'm making a covenant with you. This isn't the first time. This is a renewal ceremony. Let's do this again. Let's rip up the first copy of the contract and we'll rewrite the whole thing and it will be just as sweet. If not sweeter now that you've failed miserably at your responsibility, but I will keep my word, God says. These people, Israel, were about to enter a land full of idols, full of sinners who worshipped other gods, who lived by other policies, public policies, other family values, who mistreated the poor, who cultivated terrorist cells in their tribes. Surely these cultures would collide. Surely nations would be divided and the course of nations would be determined. There's a lot of similarities between 2016 and this text in the 1200s B.C., perhaps, 1300s B.C. Here's the connection. God's covenant people who are called to serve God alone in a land full of idols need crazy amounts of courage to obey the voice of the Lord when we go into the land. But it's not just because it's a scary place out there. It's because you, my friends, and I are idol worshipers too. You need courage to obey the voice of the Lord because you have idols in your heart and the temptations are just as strong for us to succumb to them. We need huge humility, not just crazy courage. We need humble hearts to bow down before the Lord like Moses did, falling on his face, because God has forgiven us by grace alone of our own secret sins that you're afraid to talk about. Your own scandals that maybe no, no one knows about. Or even the things that become public one day. God's forgiven us by his grace and that should give us humility and a willingness to say, okay, God, you alone are worthy of me in my life. Even though I've failed, you are still faithful. So when we enter those lunchroom discussions or the coffee break discussions or posting on Facebook or voting at the booth, we don't walk in there with a swagger. Yeah, we're Christians. Our feet don't stink. You know, our sins are more respectable than yours. No. We go humbly and yet boldly 
Because we know that we are participants in the sins of society. We are perpetrators of the sins of society that we condemn. And so we guard ourselves. Because we are not just entering a toxic culture. We are contaminated ourselves. We humble ourselves and we courageously ask God to guard us and protect us, to bow us low. And yet we don't leave it there. We rely on God in his word alone. We rely on his promises and his presence as Moses cried out in Exodus 33, don't send us to the voting booth, don't make us wake up on November 9th and live in this country unless your presence goes with us. And we rely on his presence, we rely on his promises, and we live faithful lives that God is still going to do his perfect will through us and despite us, the church, and through and despite whoever leads this nation. So, who are we in this covenant transaction? How do we fit into the story of God's covenant renewal with his sinful people Israel who were called to go to the promised land? Well, you know, the children of Israel called to be holy did some very unholy things right after they were redeemed from slavery and they made the golden calf and they bowed down to it and danced around that idol and said, this is our God, Israel and the Canaanites who will live in the promised land, those pagan people who worship their own idols, they weren't that far apart. They weren't that different, Right? I mean, could the Israelites go into the promised land and say, we are monotheists and we worship Yahweh alone. Well, you could say that with your words and your mouth, but not with your life and your history because you've got some baggage. You've got some idols in your own closet. Israelites and Canaanites might have had different idols, different ideals, different worldviews, but they all had one thing in common. That's what everyone in this room has in common. That's what everybody in this nation has in common. Whether we're red or blue or something in between, Purple, I guess. What do we all have in common in this world, not just in the old USA? We have all fallen short of the glory of God, of His standard. He created us for something better than what we are and than what we've been doing. And we should be better. We should be living the ideal life, the blessed life, the life abundantly, as Jesus described it as. Exodus 34, verse 2, God says, remember why we're rewriting this covenant. Because you broke it. Okay? Remember why I'm preaching to you today, brothers and sisters, from Exodus 34. Because we have sinned and fallen short of all the things we expect the Democrats to do, or the Republicans to do, or your friends and your family to do. The things I expect my kids to do, I don't even do them. We hypothetically and theoretically think that we're just and merciful people, we're generous people, we share with those in need. Really? Do we really do that? As God has helped you in your need? Who are we? We're law-breaking people, but yet God renews us in His covenant of grace. Praise His holy name. Now verse 3 says, Yahweh tells Moses, don't let anyone else, none of these sinners, come close to the mountain. Not even animals can stand like and graze on the other side of the pasture across from that mountain because this is a holy place and a holy ceremony is taking place and we can't have sinners contaminating this holy zone. This is not a place for outsiders, Moses. And so that just reminds us, hey, we're not insiders. We're not insiders to God's covenant. We're not naturally born into His grace. We're outsiders that have to be brought in, adopted in, forgiven, right? Forgiven. So Moses 
hears these words and he gets it. We're lawbreakers. We are humble people. We've broken the covenant. We're outsiders. He bows his face down because he knows that he himself is a sinful leader leading a sinful people into this promised land. And he says, oh, I'm, I'm not even sure I should believe it. It sounds so good. He calls him Adonai. He doesn't even say Yahweh. Adonai, Lord, just respectfully, sir, excuse me, please go with us, he says in verse 9. Please, because we are a stiff-necked people. We just don't want to turn the way you want us to turn, like a stiff-necked mule. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us, please, as your inheritance. Don't leave us here on our own. And so we've seen who we are in this story, how we fit in, but who is God, the God of the covenant? Who is he? Let's look at that. He is uniquely good, no other God like this. He's uniquely gracious, and he is unbending in his justice. He doesn't say, hey, okay, if you guys want to sin, that's fine. I can turn the other cheek, look the other way, sweep it under the rug. No, he's unbending in his justice. He's firm in his holiness, but he's also unending in his mercy. Never will his mercies end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness, and he shows his mercy to thousands, even thousands of generations. So he comes down to Moses, and he says, I will proclaim to you who I am. I am the God of the covenant. Here's who I am. The covenant renewal is recluded in by the fact that God says, I'm going to come down and stand there with you in verse 5. I'm going to, I'm going to descend in a cloud and stand there with you. That's a, that's a symbol of covenant making. When you stand by a pillar in an ancient palace by the king, you're making a covenant. And then he says, I'm going to pass by you. When you pass through something or pass by something this way, this is covenant language. God says, I'm making a covenant. Like when I appeared to Abraham in Genesis 15. Remember that story? A dark and scary night. He was having a nightmare. And in the, in the dream, God passes between these animal halves that he has slaughtered and cut in half, and he passes by with this fiery, smoking pot. He says, I am the flame. Here he is. I am the cloud. And I'm passing before you, making the covenant again, proclaiming my name. This is a covenant proclaiming, naming ceremony, just like the burning bush where God appeared in the fire again, in the burning bush. In Exodus 3.14, it says, I'm going to tell you my name, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be with you. This is who I am. Yahweh means the God who is, the God who is with us. That's who I am. I am the God who always was and always will be for you, not against you, my people. So I'm, I'm renewing the covenant. You can count on it, Moses. You can call me Yahweh. You, don't, you can stop calling me Adonai because I will be faithful to myself and to you, my people. I'm getting excited about this. This is who God is. This is the God of the covenants. He is saying, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, in verses 5 and 6. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, so unlike us, abounding in steadfast love, it never ends, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we'll talk about the next part later. But I'll stop there just to emphasize how good and merciful he is. Now this, verses 6 and 7, is like a defining definition of God. And you might think... You know, why are you saying the same thing twice? Because this is the definition of who God is. This is a defining moment in history, in the Bible's history. This is a verse that goes viral throughout the Bible. And it gets picked up over and over. And I, I wish I could read you the dozens of references to this particular verse about who God is. But I'll just save a few for your enjoyment in a minute. But let me just say this. If this is a defining verse or the banner verse of who God is, this is who I am. He's saying Yahweh then let me just say, if we could find a presidential candidate 
like this, I would gladly vote for them. As it is, I'm going to have a hard time. Full of justice, abounding in mercy, in steadfast love and faithfulness. Is there a faithful leader in our land anymore who's up on that ballot? Oh, I wish that I could vote for such a candidate. But that's the point of this whole passage. There is no one like this. There's no God like this. There's no king like this. There's no president like this. There's no Christian like this. This is God, and he alone is uniquely good and gracious, merciful, faithful. I, I wish and we should aspire to reflect the character of God like this in our own lives, in our own land. But no idol, no man, no woman is good enough to match this role of Savior of Israel, Savior of the nations. We might look to our president and say, oh, help us, get us out of this mess, the race relations, the poverty, the terrorism, this, the education system, it's just so broken. Help us, president. The president can't save us. The Congress can't save us. The mayor can't save us. We can't save ourselves. Only God is in that position, and only he has the power to be savior of all nations. And so we rightly condemn the things that people do. We don't want to condemn the people necessarily, but we condemn the policies and the practices and the character of people like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton who rely on sexual values that ultimately the Bible supports, and, and we hold them to these things and say, we want you to live honorably in your own personal lives, and we want you to promote policies that are honorable and God-honoring, and we go to the Bible and find the truth here and say, now that's the standard we're going to hold you to. Be faithful, honest people. And then we run away from the Bible's sexual ethic. We stampede and mass herds away from the Bible's sexual ethic. And we think about our own internet habits, or dating relationships, and the laws that we, as a people, have passed to change the definition of marriage, and we sacrifice our children on the altar of political correctness and expediency, and we say, well, things have changed, okay? The Bible doesn't apply now to this situation. But they should still keep that sexual ethic that it speaks of. See, what we're, we're doing is we've removed the foundational stones of biblical sexual ethics in this case, and then we cast those very stones at the people who are breaking the sexual ethics that the Bible describes. You see what, what's happening? We are finding a train running on a faithful, true track that God says this is the way to joy in your sexual lives, in your relationships, and in society. This is the way to joy. Follow the path. And we say, no, I'm going to rip up the rails. I'm going to pull the metal track off the ground and you want to just ride that train wherever it takes you. Just ride the Hormone train wherever it goes. Ride the train of desire wherever it leads you. There are no tracks anymore. And then we turn around and hand out big metal clubs that we have made from those metal rails on the train, and we begin beating each other with them, saying, keep the law, keep the sexual law that I want to hold over you. Donald Trump, keep the law. Yes, he should keep the law. And he's broken it. Hillary Clinton, keep the law. Oh, she's broken it too. And we beat each other with the very things we've just ripped out of the ground. We hypocritically condemn hypocrisy in other people with the very biblical values that we ourselves threw away yesterday. And today we're saying, you better do this. Does anybody hear me? I'm just really, really glad that God alone, that somebody out there, but God alone is good and faithful, always and forever. Our politicians aren't the only ones who are 
as the Bible says here, uses the word whoring, prostituting themselves. The politicians aren't the only ones. Some churches have lost their first love and sold themselves to our culture. What's today's date? October the 9th, five days ago, in the New York Times. There's an article describing a modern-day Asherah pole. What's an Asherah pole? Well, an Asherah pole is this thing described in verse 13. One of the things we're supposed to tear down in our culture, the, the altars, the pillars, and the Asherim, which are Asherah poles, which are monuments, kind of like a totem pole, maybe in the native uh, religion, or maybe some tower, like in our modern religion, the, the towers we build that go up to the sky, skyscrapers, I don't know, whatever the idols were in those days, they put a monument there, a pole. And this was to the god, the goddess, Asherah. Um, Ashtaroth, Asherah, she's the, the female friend or the, the uh, concubine or the wife of Baal, the Canaanite god. And so here you have this, this female uh, deity who represents, like so much of the Canaanite religion did, fertility, sexual love. All right, so their religion was full of sexuality and not in God-honoring ways or holy ways. It was kind of like, you know, uh, fertility without faithfulness or like Sex without true love and vows and promises and covenant, like marriage. This is just do whatever you want. Take the train tracks off and remove the stones of the foundation and have fun doing it. And so here we have an image in the New York Times describing a modern-day Asherah pole, as if it were built from Canaanite blueprints that we somehow found in the Middle East. Listen to this. Artist Edwina Sandy made a 250-pound bronze statue of Krista, a bare-breasted woman on a translucent acrylic cross. Just imagine. And it was installed in the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine back in 1984. Krista, as the statue is called, is of course a play on the title Christ on the cross. So Krista, the naked woman on the cross, and quickly after she was installed in 1984 in the church, she was quickly removed because there was such a scandal and people were so upset at it was dishonoring to the cross of Christ. But this time, the statue has been brought back into the church, and this time the bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of New York wrote an approving article for the cathedral's booklet in which he says, in an evolving, growing, learning church, because we are thoughtful people, we may be ready to see Krista now, not only as a work of art, but as an object of devotion. Over our altar, right over the altar, with all the challenges that then may come with that for many visitors to the cathedral or indeed perhaps to all of us. There are challenges, but we're ready for that. We're in a new age, a new mindset, learning, evolving, embracing, empowering. Yes, empowering is good. Embracing people is good. Heresy, not good. Dishonoring the cross, not good. Right in the church, right over the altar, no shame in saying it, he says. Even on the cross itself, blasphemy, whoring after other gods, other ideas, other idols. This is what we want, we say to God. Throw away the foundations. Tear up the covenant. Smash the stone tablets. We don't need those. We'll do it our way. Well, we rightly call this heresy about the cross, but do we... Love the cross? Do you sin? Do you hide in your sin? Or do you run to the cross in the shadow of the cross? Do you cling to the old 
That's old. 2,000 year old. Rugged. It hurts. It's painful. It crucifies the flesh. Cross. Do you love the cross? Or do you just like talking bad about other people's religions? I'll tear down those idols. I'll smash those stone pillars and asherim. I'll take care of it, God. I'm your man. I'm your woman. Do we love the instrument of death to our Savior because of our sin? Does it humble us? Does it break us? Do we love to go there and find peace yet again with God and humility yet again as we face the world? Our job is not just to judge others. Oh, we're okay judging others because God told us to discern and call sin, sin. Yeah, okay, we can do that. But our first job and always job is to judge ourselves. Not just to complain and whine about Krista or Trump or Hillary, but to faithfully examine our hearts and change where we need to, and then stand firm in obedience that we're ever learning. That's how we're evolving is in obedience. That's where we've fallen short, not in our understanding. We know what we're supposed to do. We just can't do it. But we're growing, we're changing, and we're standing firm. I pray more and more in the power of the cross. So make no mistake, we are at war here. I've, I've skipped an entire page of my sermon by mistake because I had it printed, I guess, on the front and back, and I just skipped an entire page. So I'm going to try to make this make sense to you. Um, but we're at war here with the culture. And we are part of the culture. Did you catch that? First Peter says, wage war against the sin in your own soul. And then you can be a priest and go out to the nations and help change it too. Listen to what Revelation chapter 13 says. Verses 5 and 10. Why don't you turn there with me? Revelation 13, 5 and 10. It's the last book of the Bible, so it's easy to find. Keep your place in Exodus. Revelation 13, 5 through 10 says this. It's talking about the beast. Now, this is hard to understand, you know, Revelation. a difficult book, but we get a pretty clear picture of who the beast is. It's like the political systems of power in the world today. Uh, I don't really believe the beast is simply just an individual person or some uh, creature with horns. This is like representative of the world system, which is against God and his truth and his ways. And so you have this beast in verse 5 who was given a mouth. Okay, so freedom to... To talk, you know, freedom of speech. The beast has freedom of speech, right? Okay? And what does this beast do with that great, great, great privilege of freedom? Human freedom. Freedom to say whatever you want. Does it say the right thing? Oh, wow. If freedom of speech only was good, noble, and true things that were said, but the beast uses its freedom of speech to blaspheme with haughty words and then allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, I don't think this is really just saying 42 months, because that time frame happens a lot in the book of Revelation. I think it usually refers to history. Okay? There's a short time that Revelation talks about, then there's 42 months, or like a time, time, time and a half, that's like 42 months, and then there's like the thousand years, which is like forever. So this is talking about, I believe, over the course of history, you've got a beast saying haughty, blasphemous things with its mouth, and then... Verse 6, it opens its mouth and begins to utter blasphemies against God. You know blasphemy means you curse God or say something that's really inappropriate about God and not true. Basically, you, you're speaking idolatrous things. You know, this is what I think God is. This is who I want God to be. Not true. That's blasphemous. And blasphemies against God's name and his dwelling, that is the church, 
and those who dwell in heaven. Also, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints. Allowed. So God has this leash, and he says, go ahead, I'll give you some more leash, some more slack. Go ahead, you can make war on the church and on the saints to conquer them. And authority was given the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Now, not everyone will worship the beast, but all types of people from all types of places during all types of time. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the I'm sorry, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There are a group of people that won't worship the beast, that won't say, hey, you could just say whatever you want, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter like what you call God, what you do to the church. There's a group of people, the church, the saints, that are under attack. It says here, and the beast has some authority over us, you know. We have to submit to the government that tells us to do things we don't want to do and God tells us not to do. We have to kind of live in this type of culture. This is, where, this is our home where we live temporarily. And yet our names are not written in the roles of the citizenship of Chicago or the United States. You might have registered to vote, but your name it doesn't really count that much that your name is registered as a Democrat, Republican, or Independent. It's not really that important. What's important is, is your name written in the Book of Life of the Lamb who was slain. Because I guarantee you, Donald Trump will not be slain for you. Hillary Clinton will not give up her life for you. And maybe someone that really loves you would do that. But there's one who's done it, and it's our only hope. That the Lamb was slain. And that's what gives me encouragement. That even though there's war against me, and I'm under authority, and I hear all sorts of blasphemous things that I, it just makes me cringe, that Jesus loved me, bought me, secured me. And then... It says in verses 9 and 10, if anybody has an ear, so if, if you've got an ear, listen. Open your ears, open your heart. Hear this word from God's word. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. People say, oh, you know, in a few years, Brad, if you preach sermons like this, you might end up in jail. End up in jail, I go. You know, so it be it. What am I supposed to do? Say, I will just deny Christ? I mean, people have been going to jail for centuries and millennia, and they still go to jail today in places very nearby. If anyone's to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. And they're not killing Christians yet in America. Killing babies. The unborn. The ones that are partially born, like coming out of the womb. They're killing people who might be Christians if you just let them live. But they're not really slaughtering us like this in, in the ways they're doing in other countries. But if, if that happens, with a sword we must be slain. Okay. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Endurance, people, faith. Don't lose hope. Don't stop believing or doing what is right. This is the call right here to endure, to press on through November 8th into November 9th and 10th and so on. Why? Why can we endure? Why can we still believe? Because God is uniquely good and gracious. And there's no one like Him. There's no one worthy of Him. Let me read a couple of those psalms to you that play that tune again, the the stanza that repeats itself, that viral verse of Exodus chapters 
chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. Listen to what it says in Psalm 86, verse 15. If you have your Bible again, you can flip to the Psalms. I'm going to highlight three Psalms just to represent how this verse is used in various ways in the Scripture. Psalm 86, verse 15 says this. But you, <coughs> you, O Adonai, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then around in this context, he uses the word Yahweh and Adonai kind of interchangeably. But what you see is if you could read this context, if you, if you have time later today, make a note, verses 11 through 17, in the entirety of this context of the psalm, speak about how to apply this truth that God is good and gracious and merciful and abounding in love and faithfulness. Apply it, he says, to when you're afraid. And instead of being afraid of the world and people who attack you and come against you, that's what the psalm is saying, fear the Lord. He says, give me a united heart to fear your name. Let my heart not be divided and worship idols and be afraid of other things. Let me just fear you alone, God, and trust in you alone because you alone are good. So if you're afraid of gang retaliation today or terrorism today or abuse today in your home, think about the goodness of God to you. He's applying this to you. Then go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, the same beautiful verse and truth about our God is quoted again in a different context. Psalm 103, verse 8. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And the context here, as you will see, if you read verses 6 through 14 especially, are to the oppressed and the weak. Poor, under-resourced people, immigrants, the unborn, to you who are weak, God shows compassion as a father shows compassion to his children. Weak people who need everything from someone else because maybe it's been taken away from them or never given to them in the first place. So Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. So we show compassion to the weak. And we receive compassion if we are weak. And then another psalm, Psalm 145, right towards the end of the Psalter, is Psalm 145, verses 8 through 9. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yahweh is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he's made. He's applying it freely to everybody now. Not just the covenant people of Israel, not even just the church. He's saying... All my creatures that I've made, I'm good to them and merciful, and I open my hand and satisfy the needs of every living thing, Psalm 145 says. His mercy is over all that he made. So shouldn't we show mercy to all of God's children? All those made in God's image? Not just in the church, but all people, all neighbors, even enemies. Showing them compassion, forgiveness, and being faithful in the midst of even persecution. And so we go to a God who stands in stark contrast against slogans like never Trump or never Hillary. Oh, those slogans both resonate with me. I'm going to tell you right now, I do not want to vote for either one of them, but one of them is going to be elected, and the day after the election, I'm going to have a heavy heart, but I'm also going to have a buoyant, joyful heart that there is a God who is not a never God. He's not a God that just condemns or a God that just says, ah, negate that one and negate that one and X this one out. He says, I'm an always God. I'm a forever God. I'm forever faithful to thousands of generations to those who love me. And yes, I do punish sin. I don't let sin fly. Back in Exodus chapter 34, he says, I don't overlook iniquities. And there is a generational pattern of if you sin, it will probably affect your children. And if we have the wrong people in office, it probably will affect our nation. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's going to go to pot overnight, but 
their choices have consequences, right? Sins have consequences. There are cycles of sin in our lives, in our world. But God says there's even hope there. Because we know that he breaks the power of sin and he cancels out those cycles in our lives by the power of Jesus. And he says something amazing when he tells us that he's, he's a jealous God and that we're going to go into this land full of idols. He says something amazing in Exodus 34, verse 10. He says, I'm going to do marvels among you that no one's ever seen before. Awesome things that I will do with you. So specifically, I think he's talking about going into the promised land. He's going to get them there through victories, through battles against you know, other nations. And then he's going to do amazing things to like, protect them and preserve them in the desert, miracles to keep them alive. But what's the most awesome thing God's ever done for his people? What's the greatest battle that's ever been waged and won? The battle against sin and death and Satan himself. And on the cross of Christ, he did the most awesome thing for us. The most marvelous thing, he defeated our own sin. And he broke the sin of the world. He has power and authority even over the beast and all the powers and all the money that exists and all the machines in politics that we see working today in our nation. God reigns over it all. He's the always, forever faithful God. Awesome. It's awesome what he does. And so, what's our response to this grace to be? Well, we'll say this in closing. He says in chapter 34, verses 11 and 12 and following, Observe what I command you today. Take care. He says in verse 12, lest you make a covenant with these people, this culture you live in. Now, it's the same Hebrew word there, observe or take care. Same word, just translated different ways for some reason in the ESV. But it's the word to, to say guard yourself. Or the word also used in the Garden of Eden, keep the garden is the word in Hebrew. Keep yourself. You know, tend to the garden, weed the garden. You know, plant good things, weed out the bad things. Vote for righteous people, if there are any, on the ballot, and say something about the people that aren't righteous, okay? Keep yourself, guard yourself, because you are susceptible, vulnerable. You're weak too, and you're tempted, just like everyone else is. You're tempted to whore after these other gods, and you're even tempted to let your kids just kind of do their own thing and not teach them the truth, so that this next generation doesn't get it, and then they become just like the culture. That's our temptation. Protect yourselves. Protect each other. And this isn't just old-fashioned morality. It's now out of fashion because it's 2,000 years old. This is in our headlines today. We want morality. Our nation's crying out for it, saying things like, Donald Trump, you can't get away with those degrading, destructive comments and treatment of women. No, he can't. Don't let him off the hook. There's a reason we say justice must be served, and we must speak about injustice when we see it in immorality when we see it. We're the evangelical leaders of the church today who denounced Bill Clinton in the 90s for his affairs. Impeach him. Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I was right there thinking, that's terrible. Our president shouldn't be doing that. Are we saying it with equal fervor today? Something's changed in America. We're kind of letting some people off the hook a little bit more. What about Hillary Clinton? What do we say? when she has a smile on her face and talks about aborting babies and says, we, we don't even really want to call them people, especially not like made in God's image. What do we say when our candidates stand before us unflinchingly saying, no, nah, there's really no standard. 
there's no standard. We have sexual schizophrenia, you could say. We want them to be accountable, yet we make exceptions. We want them to be accountable, but we excuse ourselves. Thank God that he's given us a clear word today. Say, watch yourselves. Be careful. Things are contaminated in you and all around you. I have a way out, God says. I'm the only way out. I am good, I'm gracious, I'm faithful, and I'm jealous. I don't want you to put your trust in the president. I don't want you to put your trust in yourself. I don't want you to put your trust in a pastor or a church or anything. I want you to put your trust in me alone. I hope you have some good friends and people that you can trust. But trust in me alone for all your needs. He says, I'm jealous. I don't want you to go give your heart to something lesser that's not going to satisfy you, something that's a lie or something that's going to run out of steam at the end. I will take you through and I'm the only one that can stand under the pressures of your life and save you. Grace brings responsibilities. He says, I've given you so much grace, I'm expecting you to be faithful to me. Have a wholehearted allegiance to me. Don't worship other gods. There's a lot of competitors in the God market today. He says, turn your backs on them and worship me alone. Because this isn't your true home, and those aren't true gods. America is not your true home. And this is the last thing, is that our response to grace is to remember that we're exiles. We are people who, our zip code is here in Chicago, but our citizenship is in heaven. A place that will one day come down to earth and renew the earth and change the way it looks. First Peter chapter 1 says we are exiles, resident aliens. We don't really belong here, but we live here. We're kind of just passing through. It's a long journey, but keep your suitcase packed, he's saying. Be ready, because one day the world's going to change. Jesus will come back, or he'll call you home. And this world that you live in now, the present state of things, isn't going to be there anymore. It's going to pass by very quickly. So, Philippians 3.30 says, we don't set our mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't await a Savior from Washington, D.C., or downtown Chicago, or anywhere else. The University of Chicago, no, our Savior is coming from another place. And while we live here, yes, Jeremiah 29 tells us, very clearly in verse 7, seek the shalom of the city. I'd like you to go vote. I hope you go vote. You don't have to vote. Like, I'm not going to say, you're wrong if you're a Christian and you don't vote. Because, you know what, it's going to be really hard to vote this year. I get that. I hope you vote. I hope you go engage your culture. I hope you post on Facebook and talk with friends and use the presidential dilemma that we're in and the, the problems that we bring to it. I hope that you use that to talk about God's goodness, that he's the only hope we have. I mean, what a great time to talk about the way things are broken and the way things could be fixed. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile, God says, and pray for the Lord, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for the peace of Chicago. Pray for the peace of our country. Pray for the peace of the world. He says, work, vote, redeem the time, redeem the system. Get into politics if you want to and redeem the politics. Get into culture if you want to and redeem the culture. But he says, I've called you here. Just don't forget that while you're working for the good of your neighbor and of your land, you're still citizens of an eternal kingdom that will never end. You've heard it said, think globally and act locally, right? I'm asking you to think heavenly and act locally. Okay? Take these eternal things that really matter from Exodus 34 and apply them to the things that are happening this week and this month and while you're still here on this earth. Think heavenly and act locally. I mean, act as locally as your own heart. Take these words to heart that I've preached today from God's word that you need 
to identify and smash your idols which you're carrying around your heart. You need to act locally like with your sons and daughters, the people within your little sphere of influence. Teach them the truth. Act locally like with your friends and your neighbors and your roommates and your coworkers. Act locally with them in a heavenly-minded way. Post on social media. That's a little bit more global. It's going to go out there. Think before you do it. Do it in a way that's going to honor God and not necessarily exalt one system over another when they're all really broken. Make sure you put some conditions on there. You know, If you love one candidate or the other, I sure hope you speak truth about all of the candidates and all of their brokenness. Let's never confuse our two homes. We have two homes. One temporary, one true. Let's remember where our citizenship is. Let's remember who reigns on high. Let's remember who's coming back to save us. I'm going to wake up on November 9th very heavy-hearted, but also very glad that Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 is true. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 is true. With a trumpet blast and loud shouts from heaven, we hear the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Christ. And he shall reign forever. And ever. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth and all the kingdoms, we thank you that you, the king, have come down low and shown us your goodness and your glory and your grace, even in the cross, and that you've raised from the dead and you reign, living forevermore for your church. And we know that you've given authority and also the ability to make war from those in power against even your people and some that are weak and oppressed in this land. But we pray that you would save us and give us strength to endure and to believe. This is a call for endurance and for the faith of the saints. Help us to serve this city well, but not to settle for the city. Help us to always have an itch for the world to come. Help us to have a homesickness for heaven, which will come to earth, but is not yet here fully. We pray today... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven forever and ever. Amen.